With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Howdy, howdy. Buenas noches. <laughs> at some point, I will run out of different ways to say hello or greetings or salutations. But at least I have a lot of different cultures to draw upon right now. One hundred years ago, the Red Sox were baseball's most dominant franchise with visions of a fifth championship in 16 seasons. But the United States was at war and the immediate future of the game was in doubt. By season's end, there was little reason to celebrate, even in the home city of the world champions. I refer to the 1918 World Series as maybe the most joyless World Series ever played. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Let's Get Weird podcast. We're doing another one this week. This one is number five, and we actually have a little bit of an intro written here. Exactly 100 years ago, the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox squared off in a World Series that was played a month earlier than usual due to World War I and amidst a backdrop of revolutionary changes in workers' rights, women's rights, and global alliances. It was also a society on the precipice of massive technological change, which would bring about rapid social change during the Roaring Twenties. A young budding superstar named Babe Ruth, leading the strongest dynasty in sports at the time, the Spanish flu erupting in Boston and its suburbs, and an epidemic that spread around the world, first to military installations and then to civilians, and the many soldiers and war heroes with Massachusetts connections turned the tide of World War I. The media climate covering the series and the emerging health crisis were dramatically different as well. Government censorship of the media largely contributed to the spread of the plague because publications were in fear of printing stories that painted a dire portrait of the status quo at the time. Life was significantly different 100 years ago in terms of media and the government. There were laws passed during World War I that made it illegal for newspapers or magazines to criticize the government or the president to print anything that would be considered bad for morale or unpatriotic. The Spanish Flu, the World Series, the Boston Red Sox, and the Chicago Cubs. Let's get weird, Otis. Yes, that would be Otis and Paul Banks with Otis the Cat. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, I decided to let Otis do my introduction for me this week. (laughs) Otis is just happy that I got my flu shot because reading this book... uh, Reading this book, you'll pretty much drop whatever you're doing and make sure you get your flu shot. So I know that the Spanish flu pandemic was one of those things that, as a kid, I don't remember hearing a ton about it. You hear about World War One, and you hear what it did just to the society and Europe and the American involvement was much later and whatnot, but... You look at something like the Spanish flu, and it's just a, uh, holy shit, this thing was crazy. Oh, it was just unreal. Um, just out of, if this thing had accelerated, it was, the math, if you looked at the rate of acceleration in Massachusetts at that time, September 1918, you would have, if that pace had continued, it would have been an extinction-level event. I mean, this was worse than the bubonic plague. This was the Black Death here in America. And 
from interviewing the author of this book, uh, September 1918, War Plague in the World Series by Skip Desjardins. Uh, that's where we're doing, we're drawing our podcast off this book. And he made, yeah, okay, Otis, we know. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on, I gave him so much wet food and treats today, he really needs to calm down. But anyway, where did I, yeah, so Skip Desjardins said to me that pr- the reason we don't know as much about the Spanish flu, the reason it, it's not something taught in history class is that its outbreak coincided when the war was ending and everybody was so overjoyed that the great war had finished that the horrors and atrocities of this flu kind of got lost in the shuffle. So when people told their stories of 1918, they would talk about the war ending instead of the flu. And and see, that's what's so fascinating because I know a few years ago, I was just kind of doing some, uh, I was doing some random research on my own family's ancestry and everything. And I actually discovered that my great grandfather was one of the millions of fatalities uh, that occurred uh, during the Spanish flu epidemic. He died of the Spanish flu in late December, 1918, uh, fortunately, my grandfather was born at the time. He was about a year and a half old, but uh, I knew he had never known his father and that his father died when he was very young. But I did not find out until much later when I actually found his uh, his obituary in like an Indiana newspaper that, yes, he, he was a victim of the Spanish flu. Yeah, as uh, the author of the book said, one of his ancestors was a victim of the Spanish flu as well. And uh, the reason it got its name is because Spain at the time was the only country that had um, had a press that was open enough to actually report on it and talk about just how vicious and scary it was. Because around that time, everyone else, the, the media climate was so censored that they didn't report on it. So it became this idea that this flu was a thing in Spain when actually... They can trace it to America. It actually originated in America, but I guess yeah. um, so. This so this podcast really hits home for you tonight, then, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I just brought up the. I was able to go into my ancestry.com account, and I just brought up the obituary. Uh, it says here, in the prime of life, Rufus W. Dillon of La Fontaine succumbs to influenza pneumonia. Uh, reared in home of Simon Spradling near Hopewell, leaves wife and four children. Says he uh, lasted for two weeks and then pat- died at 12:30 last night uh, at his home, three fourths of a mile north of La Fontaine. He was a highly respected resident of Wabash County for more than 30 years, and he was 43 years old when he died. Uh, surviving the deceased are his wife and family of four children, two daughters, Ursi and Ione, and two sons, Ursel and that would be the next one would be my grandfather Raymond. You have you have the uh, ban on everything there, but you know this is something that they still mention it, and this is listed as December eleventh, nineteen eighteen. So yeah, it would be right in the prime of that influenza outbreak. So I, that's just one of those historical things that I kind of found fascinating. And it's like, whoa, I have an ancestor that died of this, and well, thankfully he died after my grandfather was born. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. That's very. That's a distinct possibility. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, as you mentioned, uh, it started in Kansas, but part of the reason that it spread is because of World War II and just the absolutely appalling conditions in the trenches and everything else going on with the war, not to mention 
we were sending troops over to Europe at the time with uh, close quarters, large movements of troops and everything else. So that uh, helped the virus grow. And you're already attacking people with weakened immune systems because, well, they're in the middle of a fighting a bloody war. Right. The flu is something that it, it kills. Well, the, the normal flu kills uh, the feeble, the the very young, the very old, uh, those that are sick already. It doesn't kill the strong. This one really ravaged uh, young men and women in the primes of their lives and in physical shape because it was such a different strain of the flu. It would turn lungs gelatinous within hours. I mean, some of, some of the stuff I've read in the book is just it's just heartbreaking about how fast, how bad things got so quickly. Yeah, and I mean, that, I mean, that even says that right there in the obituary for my great-grandfather, in the prime of life. It sounds like he was doing fine, doing fine, and then two weeks later, he's dead at 43 with four kids. So it's just, it's so bizarre that something with that would happen, and it wasn't any small thing. It went around the world, and they think that maybe as many as 100 million people died from this, which is insane uh at least half a million in the u.s died well i can only speak to the to the american experience because that the worst part of it i from what i've read and from what i've seen what made it so bad was that it was set against the backdrop of world war one and a man named george creel was such an effective propagandist in the idea of the war encompassing every aspect of life no matter how big or small is what made this thing really take off because the there was just the government and the military was in such strong denial for the longest time. And they were in denial because they didn't want to do anything that would be bad for morale. That's why the media was censored so much. They couldn't print stories that were bad for morale. They didn't want the Kaiser to find out that more troops were staying home and not coming over there to fight. And I mean, there's even, there was even the authority saying things like, don't be sick. It's unpatriotic. And if you are sick and you are dying, you, you are a leech on, on us and this great nation and this great cause. I mean, the na I mean, nationalism that's, you know, in the news this week, that people don't use that word anymore. The nationalism at this time was just obscene and off the charts. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, nationalism is the whole reason the war itself started, too. And But it, it just fascinates me that the Spanish flu killed maybe twice as many people that died during the war, and it did it in a year, whereas the war itself went over four years. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it. it I still don't understand how something like – I already offered an explanation for why we don't know more about it or how it's not really told in history class, but it, but it really should be. I mean, I mean, when you go to Europe, there's monuments everywhere to the Black Plague, and you know, I I, I st before reading this book, I still knew very little about about the Spanish flu. Yeah, and it officially and it officially lasted about a year to two years, and they think maybe as many as 500 million people were affected by it and that was just an insane amount of the of the population of the world at the time i mean there were stories of of priests giving mass in the morning getting sick and being dead by sundown uh there was a story in massachusetts of a chauffeur who uh was driving his client somewhere upstate and he contracted it 
and he sent for his fiance to come upstate to make sure that he wouldn't die without marrying her and he succumbed too fast for her to sign the papers and stories about families where there's like an eight-year-old boy taking care of his parents and his siblings because he's the only one who's healthy in a family of five what really got me was all the bullshit excuses that the government and the health i mean this is the health commissioner talking sometimes what they would throw out there i mean it, it's it's dark comedy that's for sure Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and that I think you have to look at it with an eye of a dark comedy, especially 100 years later. In the middle of all this, uh, something here to talk about in our podcast, we have a World Series with the Chicago Cubs and the Boston Red Sox, which for the longest time was the last time that the Boston Red Sox had won a World Series. And the Cubs had their own lengthy drought of even making the World Series. So, you know, this is all going on in the face of a world war and a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, so, you know, it was definitely not a slow news day. It wasn't a slow news month. So we, we go to the background of the World Series here, and this was the final World Series with Babe Ruth on the Red Sox, too. Uh, I believe he was traded after the next season, if I recall correctly. Is that right? I, I think you're right. Because um, in 1919, the White Sox made it back. And this this was his last. This is the Babe Ruth of Bill the Pitcher. And he wants to do it all. But is he's it's a very contentious time for him. He's, he's, he's fighting with his uh, manager about whether he could get more time he wants to. He doesn't want to pitch because then he only gets to hit once every every five days. Well, not every five days, but you know, less. I mean, that time they were still overworking pitchers. But he's he hasn't shifted to a position player yet. But he is the most dominant player uh, at the time. He's he's already at that level by this point. And also, the this World Series was not played at Wrigley Field, wasn't it? Uh, even though uh, the Cubs were playing at Wrigley then, by then I believe it was in its fourth year of existence uh the cubs had to play at comiskey park and why is that because they saw how well they drew in 1917 at comiskey park for that world series and wigman park as it was known then wasn't wrigley field yet it was smaller in attendance so they wanted to get the bigger gate and it didn't work out too well um basically the war just tore into the target demographics and they, it was played at Comiskey Park, and it was played over crowds. Sometimes it was like a third empty. Yeah, and you, you would never see that today. Uh, I mean, game one's going on right now, obviously a sellout and whatnot. But, you know, it was hard to believe here. I've got the page up for that specific World Series. The Red Sox win it 4-2. to two. The Red Sox would not play at Wrigley Field until June 10th, 2005. And then it says, and then it says here the the Cubs did not return to Fenway Park for another ninety four years until May twentieth, two thousand eleven. So yay, thank you interleague play at least for that. It would wouldn't it be awesome if we were watching the Cubs and the Red Sox in the World Series right now? It would be at least a little less stressful now that both teams had won it. But remember, we damn near got that in two thousand three. Six out, five outs away on each side. Yeah, yeah, but but I as a Cubs fan. They won it in my lifetime. I'm happy. If they win it again, that would be great. I'll be, I'll enjoy it, but it happened in my lifetime. It was a long time coming, and 
I actually feel like the Cub World Series now. I mean, what what's left in terms of sports stories? Uh, well, you, you're talking to a Purdue fan. I want a Final Four. Uh, that is ha- that too has happened in my lifetime, but I really don't remember it since I was five months old. So anyway, so what were some of the uh, strange when strange events here that happened from the uh, from this World Series? I'm looking at your notes here that you sent me and. Looks like there's a Wrigley Field lock-in with slacker sleep, slacker sweeps and stuff and everything slacker else. Sweeps. Yes, no matter what happens when you go to Wrigley Field, take your worst day, the worst experience. You know, like maybe you go on a day when Tyler Chatwood pitches. Hey! hey. Um, <laughs> but that is nothing compared to the work or fight order and the slacker sweeps. What happened was, they would lock at the end of the game, they would lock the gates and they went up to each man in the crowd and said, yeah, it was just like, show us your papers. Literally they were over 500 men were detained in the first of what became known as slacker sweeps aimed at finding men who were defying the government's order to take a job or take up arms. So at this point, actually, yeah, July 11th was when they really started enforcing this. You had to either be enlisted or you had to work in an industry like shipbuilding or, you know, bomb making or or something. That was a war industry. And if not, you could, you would be detailed, you would be detained and go to jail. That's lovely. So that's what the slacker sweep was, was, hey, you, we, you know, it was like a, it was one of those, um, honey traps or whatever, where they used to try to catch criminals. This Terrible. would be the last time that we have something similar at Wrigley Field because of, we have the famous Lee Elliott quote of uh, most of these fans uh, aren't even work, don't even work, and that's why they're at a day game at Wrigley Field. Yes, I was actually thinking about that when I saw this. I'm like, the famous Lee Elliott tirade of 1983 where he's, he's like, 85% of the world works, the other 15% just come here to boo us. <laughs> And growing up watching the Cubs every day as a kid, that's what my dad would always say at the TV. He's like, how is that place full? No no one works? Because this is before they even they had lights, and it was all day games. And he's like, no one works? See, that's, that's how I'm an old-school Cubs fan. I've been to a game before the lights were finished. My first game was about two months before they finished putting them in. So I, I have a special affinity for day baseball in the middle of the week at Wrigley Field. Oh, me too. I mean, that that was a, just a tradition. But this ended up just destroying the attendance because a lot of their a lot of guys who would go to the game were devoted to the war effort or working towards uh, World War One. And also, one of the games was played on a day in which a bomb went off downtown. Really? And what makes this really even more interesting is that uh, an anarchist bomb went off, and it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, another bombing. Okay. Because that that's yet another factor that you have going on at this time. You have World War One, and everything going on there. The, the United States is finally involved in sending troops overseas and whatnot. You have the influenza epidemic. And you also have this little thing called the Communist Revolution trying to spread around the globe because... By this point in 1918, the Russians had already backed out of the war. 
my favorite, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been signed <laughs> to give the uh, Germans most of Eastern Europe it, uh, there. And uh, the Germans were like, hell yeah, let's do this communist revolution thing all over the bloody world. So you have communists coming in, trying to bomb everything, workers trying to strike and uh, seize the tools of production. But the anarchists, the anarchists, of course, the ones that just want to bomb and blow it up just for the sake of bombing shit and blowing it up. Right. And what's what's amazing about history with its little um, intertanglements was this bomb went off at the federal building and there was a major labor trial going on and the court presiding over that court was the one and only judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yes. <laughs> the best name in baseball ever. And then you've got um, the Red Sox stayed at the Hotel Buckminster, which is uh, or wait, no, the Hotel Buckminster is the one in Boston where We'll get to that. There's there's more connections to that with the Black Sox. But the Red Sox is a hotel metropole, which unfortunately does not stand anymore. Otherwise, I would think that'd be an awesome tourist place to go because that was Al Capone's headquarters. And since Al Capone likely died of advanced syphilis, God knows what they could have caught there. That's true. We are we are talking about germs and everything. So. <laughs> So this story's got a little bit of everything, and it was just a year after the Black Sox scandal. What would it be without a World Series without trying to throw the World Series for either team or trying to get more money? Right. That's um, where things really kind of get interesting. There was a guy named Max Flack who was, you know, a pretty good— Actually, the Cubs had lost Grover Cleveland Alexander to the war, so another awesome name right there. Oh, yes. So, so that kind of put Max Flack as one of their best players. And no player in World Series history before or since has been picked off twice in the same game. So that was fishy. Obviously, he wasn't facing John Lester. Oh, well, there Hey! <laughs> Who pitched for the Red Sox and the Cubs? Thank you very much. We're a World Series with both, if I recall. Uh, the newspaper reports about his fielding were very suspect. He really looked like he was tanking. A lot of plays in the outfield. And then there's one extremely suspicious play in which his pitcher told him to play deeper when Babe Ruth was up. And he completely ignored him and stayed in shallow. And lo and behold, Babe Ruth hit one right over his head for the game-winning triple. It's all coming together, Pepper. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So so what was going on with the Red Sox if we have – Flat getting picked off and everything else. Right. So they actually, since the attendance is so bad, there's a lot of concern about how low they're going to get paid for this series. And that is at, at this at this point in history, their, their take from the gate is what determines their pay. So there was, before game five, there was an actual uh, work stoppage. There was a brief strike a couple hours before both teams decided to strike, but that kind of went nowhere and the game went on as it was. But the series was set to end. The Red Sox knew that they would lose their bargaining power if if, if the series were to end. And they extended it by just... There was this one game in which they just totally laid down and it really looked... If you if It just looked like a complete joke. <laughs> <laughs> they could have clinched it and just moved on and it would have been over, but... 
in order it, it it was kind of like um you know the always conspiracy theories about michael jordan uh the bulls dynasty about how you know nbc would not want a four game sweep so they could get more it was that kind of thing and uh i see babers pitch game four i'm best i'm betting you're talking about game five where boston only had five hits uh with another fantastic name hippo vaughn getting the win over sad sam jones Yes, that is the one. It was game five. Also, um, at this point, the grass at Comiskey Park was cut by sheep. They did not have a grounds crew. <laughs> See, Honestly, we, you know, we have a lot of great common threads in the body of work so far. We have, like, like last time we did 1983 and 1979 – then we did 1919, and now here we are back at 1918. This is just crazy here, and I'm surprised that uh, somebody like the Marlins trying to save money haven't tried to use sheep to cut the grass at Marlins Park or something. No, I need, I'm trying to find – I got to find the passage about Babe Ruth getting shit-faced drunk with the media and openly talking about gambling and like it was just nothing. So it was Tuesday then. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> From from my understanding of Babe Ruth, the only thing that would surprise me is if he did bring a, did not bring a pro- prostitute into that. No, I we I did not see anything about prostitution in this book, but I still have about forty something pages left to go. And so some of your other notes here look like it's uh, really really interesting with uh, the public health commissioners with some of their solutions to fight the flu, uh, which also didn't uh, probably didn't contribute too much to the epic gate at comiskey park and fenway park either they kept moving the goalposts on everybody they kept coming up with different ideas of of what could uh first uh fresh air you need fresh air is what you need to get and stay healthy which is of course the complete opposite because like you just said being in crowds that that's how we got here that's how this this virus spread was everybody was all compact um it started in the military facilities, and then it spread to the civilian population. But there was always, you know, get out and fresh air. Um, don't spit on the sidewalk. I'm not sure I get the, the understand that, because but not spitting on the sidewalk is supposed to. Um, don't kiss, so it's like mono, like the kissing disease. So yeah, so you know, don't uh, don't be hooking up and stuff. Gotta gotta be uh. Got to play it chaste. Don't wear tight shoes. I'm not making this up. Tight shoes could spread the plague. The stuff about morale and patriotism already covered that. Uh, and then and then there was all the bullshit about, well, you know, we've had this rain, and once the rain passes, it'll be fine. And then, it's, uh, you know, we just need, we need a cold snap. We need a cold snap to kill off these germs, and then you get people staying inside. They're staying inside because it's cold, and that'll do it. I mean, it just, they kept changing. They didn't know what the hell they were doing, and they kept changing the story. And really, the worst part of it, I think, is the fact that it was wartime, and they just would not stop their damn military parades and military exhibitions, and that just brought more people into it. Uh, and it, it really was just a such a... Such a combination of things that got it all together there. It, it's so crazy that, you know, I'm seeing some other things here. It's like, oh, they were burying people in lead coffins. 
<laughs> to try and uh, stave off the spread of the virus. And it's like, well, if they're already dead, then how's it going to spread the virus? Right. It it's it's almost um it it's not far off from that dollop that I, I don't know if you've listened to this one, the one about uh, the vampires in Massachusetts around the turn of the century. Oh yes, yes. When people were digging up dead bodies and eating the hearts because they felt that was going to stop them from becoming vampires. We are a stupid, stupid people. Oh, it 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 gets worse. It it gets worse when you really delve into it. I mean, there's there's racism, there's there's uh, ethnocentrism, there's everything was at work here. I refuse to believe that there was racism in America in 1918, Paul. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we settled all that in the World War or in the Civil War. Here's um, from page 178 in September 1918. Various ethnic groups seem to favor different home remedies to fight the influenza. Irish families tended to pin bags of camphor balls to their clothing. Germans swore by a shot of whiskey and plenty of fresh air. Italian mothers strung pouches of garlic around the necks of their children. The Finns ate herring. These feeble attempts got so out of hand that U.S. Surgeon General Rupert Blue eventually released a statement. The health service urges the public to remember that there is, as yet, no specific cure for influenza, and that many of the alleged cures and remedies now being recommended by neighbors, nostrum or nostrum vendors, and others do more harm than good. And I, and you mentioned the dollop and their stuff. I know that they've done some other uh, some other dollops on patent remedies and everything, and how most of the time it was like some mixture of alcohol and cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of seems to be like the early twentieth century panacea. Just. Just cocaine. <laughs> like, didn't early Coke actually have cocaine in it? Yes, yes, it did. <laughs> well, here's another one. Here's our um, here's our good friend. It's 1918, so you knew this was going to arrive. The anti-Semitism. Oh. That train's never late. <laughs> the Jews are so afraid of having fresh air in the house that it is a continual fight to have the windows open, recalled one visiting nurse. Overcrowded! No wonder whole families were stricken. But how can they help overcrowding when there are large families and the man earns small wages and the cost of living is being pushed up every day? So it was the Jews' fault that they got influenza because they didn't open the windows enough, according to this nurse. Oh, crazy times, crazy times. And everything's changed since then. We, we don't have anything like any of this at all. Nothing. No, it's, it's all common sense these days. Everything's logic and reason. We, we live in a time now where, you know, experts are, are honored and valued for their expertise. Oh, exactly. Like this whole global warming thing. I mean, geez, we, we are listening to the scientists and we are doing what is best for this country. <laughs> I'm sure our sound engineer is really loving this part of the podcast right now. Doc, Dr. Juan just goes triggered in our little chat double that we have for this. <laughs> <laughs> so do we have anything else that we really want to mention here? I mean crazy that all this is going on at the same time and uh obviously we're able to tie it in because the red sox are back in the world series right now 
Uh, I mean, is there anything else that the book mentions? Well, I, I thought it was really interesting that here we are, the Red Sox are back in the World Series, and the last decade or so has been really good to them. Obviously, for Boston sports, it's been a juggernaut across the board. But at this time, when they won the World Series, there was no champagne, no celebration. Uh, the fans were just blasé about it. The team was blasé about it. It was just kind of like, like, well, we already went over that game five that the Red Sox basically tanked and threw away. And then when they did win in game six, they just kind of got it over with and whatever. But what makes that so fascinating to me is that no one had any idea what was coming after that. They had no idea that they wouldn't be they wouldn't win a World Series again until 2004 because they were a dynasty at this time. They'd won it in 1912, 1915, 1916 and this was just kind of ho hum for them and they didn't get too amped about it and and it, it was kind of it's kind of ho hum for the Cubs because it had only been 10 years since they had won. They went they were in the World Series in 07, 08 uh, obviously, 06 with the All Chicago World Series. They were back in uh, 1910. Then you have 1918. They have a bit of a gap there. 1929 to 32, 35, 38, 45, and then nothing. So both teams really kind of fell off within the intervening years after this. Right, and I think that's been part of what's kind of made these two teams symmetrical in a way, like opposite. Uh, they both have that old classic ballpark. They both have that uh, woes is me, I'm a tortured fan kind of fan base, the classic. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, it, it is just uh, it is pretty fascinating to see all this. So and the uh, other thing I wanted to say about the plague that was important was um, it wasn't until somebody who was a local celebrity, there was a very famous uh, Boston politician, and of course, you know, it's not till you know a rich white male. Once it happened to a rich white male, once he died, then people kind of started to think that, oh, you know what, this could affect all of us because up until that point, they were really kind of scapegoating immigrants and they thought like it was limited just to that population. And you know, once again, it's great that a hundred years later, America is not scapegoating immigrants for anything. Well, as we learned, immigrants, they get the job done. <laughs> so this was episode five of the uh, Let's Get Weird Sports. And uh, I don't think we've really settled on a topic for episode six, have we? No, we haven't. We have been in talks with uh, a history podcaster who mentioned Turkish oil wrestling. And we're still working out the format with his schedule and our schedule to do it. And also... I, I don't really know much about Turkish oil wrestling, do you? Well, I went pro when I was younger, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't got a clue about Turkish oil wrestling. I don't know. What's the SB Nation Turkish oil wrestling blog called? Let's, um, let's go online and see what they're talking about right now. If it's not naked, oily Homer, it needs to be. You know, one last thing I'll say about Boston is... Um, from reading all this stuff about this horrific health commissioner who didn't know what the hell, who actually was fairly qualified and was good at his job, but I guess maybe it's the turn of the century. For what he was doing and making things worse, 
um, that aforementioned dollop that covered uh, the vampire craze that swept through that state. Actually, the, in, the, the influenza did hit Salem pretty bad, too, but the Salem witch trials, I mean, is it just coincidence that all this, like, horrific junk science and panic just hits this state or this city, or I don't know? No, I think it's limited to this country because we're, we're full of idiots. You, you only need to look around at the internet today for about 15 minutes before you're just like, Oh my God. But any, and that's as far as I'm going to go on that one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, cause I love Boston. If I could live anywhere else, Boston would be the top of the list. People I know from Boston are great. I, I love Bostonians, but it's just something I kind of noticed. Yeah. And I've been to Fenway. Fenway's a beautiful ballpark. It's wonderful. Also, I wondered if the reason they say like wicked good and wicked bad and wicked far, I wonder if that has to do with Salem and the witch trials. I don't know. I, when, the one time I was in Boston, we made the stop in Salem. It just kind of tourist trapped us. But uh, it was all kind of generic and everything. And I wasn't wasn't that impressed by it. It is a little bit touristy, that's for sure. It is a little bit uh I mean, I enjoyed it, but... It's nothing compared to Lexington and Concord. I mean, that's where you got to go. Oh, yes, definitely. But we do have another topic that we are set on that we are going to do. Ryan Leaf, perhaps the greatest bust in NFL draft history. He is going to be keynoting an address uh, at an event right here in Chicago, and that is coming up. That is a week from Friday already. Ryan Leaf will keynote the address, speaking on his jersey from NFL star to struggling with addiction and serving prison time to prominent advocate for behavioral and mental health today. That's uh, that's going to be a good one, because I know there, there's a lot of what-ifs there with Ryan Leaf. Uh, obviously, here in Indianapolis, it was uh, there was some serious questions on who they were going to draft, Peyton Manning or Ryan Leaf, and th- there's not a small chance uh, that the Indianapolis Colts would still be the Indianapolis Colts had they picked Ryan Leaf over Manning. And, of course, you eventually have Ryan Leaf flaming out so spectacularly in San Diego that they drafted some guy, Purdue fans might be uh, aware of him, some guy named Drew Brees as a result. If you look at the numbers, I mean, it's unbelievable how bad he was in the NFL. Oh, he was horrific. And he didn't even, I mean, he didn't even stay that long to really be horrific. That's the astounding thing is usually if you're a bad quarterback, like I, I'm thinking, you know, a Tim Couch and a Keeley Smith or uh, something like that, usually uh, they're able to stay around two, three, four years. I don't think Ryan Leaf made it into his third season, if I recall. Uh, not three full seasons because he only had one other stop was Dallas after San Diego. Yeah, I think he was on the roster in Dallas. Yeah, he okay. He played. He started three times for Dallas in 2001, but yeah, didn't even play at all in 1999 because of a shoulder injury. Why did they part ways with Breeze to then draft Rivers exactly? Well, they had actually drafted Rivers. Uh, they thought Breeze was not going to work out. I think it was through his third season. And he was kind of up and down. And they drafted Eli Manning, traded for Rivers. And then 
I believe Rivers was still working on issues in his contract, so Breeze got most of the uh, camp snaps that year and was named the starter for the start of the season, and he just finally got it and took off. He made the Pro Bowl that season, so that's why they were kind of stuck with two quarterbacks until uh, he was. they were playing that last regular season game, and Breeze nearly had his arm physically ripped from his body. So they kind of gave up on him after that injury and decided to go with Rivers. Yeah, they, they did give up on him after the injury, but uh, they, they had already had Rivers at that point. Uh, they, they were ready to give up on him even before that, but he came out and just had a really good, uh, I think it was the 2001 season, may have even taken him to the playoffs. Yeah, he, he ended up just kind of coming out of nowhere that year, and really it's the metaphorical light just came on for him finally. Yeah, I'd say he had uh, a decent comeback, and I think he made a nice little career for himself. What do you think? Um, it, it might work out for him in the long run. I'm not sure. I mean, we'll have we'll have to check the numbers later on. So Ryan Leaf will give a keynote at this gala at the Drake, and I will be there, and I'm going to have an interview. I, I think I'm going to have an exclusive with him, and we're going to talk about his addiction to painkillers, and we're going to talk about his time in prison and his time flaming out of the NFL, and when it's all said and done, I think we're going to have a nice little uh, let's get weird six, let's get weird six on our hands. Awesome. Well, this has been the Let's Get Weird podcast number five, and appreciate everybody for listening to us, and appreciate Paul for coming by to inform us about all the weirdness of a hundred years ago, so... Uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back with Let's Get Weird 6 before too long. And Otis. And Otis, of course. Back to Folk. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. It has been 86 years. And for the first time since 1918, the Boston Red Sox are champions of baseball.